0: Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Piron. In this conversation with practical philosopher Tom Morris, at one point I asked him how he had so much drive, so much energy, one book after another, one talk after another, and he said joy. He said, I, I'm filled with joy when I do the thinking to help people find the wisdom that they have as well and bring that joy to their lives. So not a bad way to spend one's life. And Tom has had a long and successful career, both in in an academic roles as a philosopher and now out in the world, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, other social media, just bringing us joyful messages, and boy, do we need it. So thank you, Tom Morris. Now listen to this fascinating practitioner. Well, folks, I am uh, a bit of a lurker on Facebook and LinkedIn. I like to see people who are doing what I do, which is to be a presence, For one reason, because it's been damn lonely over the last several years with the pandemic, isolation, and so forth. And secondly, it's exciting to find ways to meet people all over the world and in all kinds of fields, and some of whom I am so intrigued by I bring to the podcast, The Practice Podcast. And today it's Tom Morris. And what caught my eye, other than his wonderfully brief and engaging posts around different I- images that he uses, is that he is a public philosopher. Uh, even though he spent some time here in Connecticut at Yale, a lot of time, Tom, back in the day, and, and has um, been a professor and, and most recently at Notre Dame. He's just, I, I think while we're talking, he's writing a book because <laughs> he's written so many. And uh, and I've just met him briefly before I started this recording, and he's got more energy than uh, than I think we can pack into a thirty minute conversation. But welcome, welcome, Tom. And uh, what is this public philosopher idea that that's so intriguing?
1: Uh, hey, Dave, good to be with you. Um, well, I had no idea there was such a thing. I mean. I had been a university professor uh, for many years and uh, loved the classroom. I taught an eighth of the student body at Notre Dame. I had 12 teaching assistants to do all the grading of papers. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I taught on Monday and Wednesday, in uh, an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon. That was my weekly work schedule uh, in the classroom. I thought I was going to be doing that my entire life. My, um specialty was philosophy of religion philosophical theology i would write articles that 37 people in the world could understand using mm-hmm. modal logic and set theory and all kinds of things and mm-hmm. um I got a call from the Chamber of Commerce of South Bend. Could could I come and give a talk on ethics to a bunch of young business leaders? And rather than say, well, I'm not the ethics guy, you're calling the wrong guy, I call somebody else. I said, OK, that seems like a worthwhile thing to do. So I came up with something I could say that I thought might be useful. And to about, oh, I guess 100 people maybe 60 of those invited me to come to their Kiwanis Club, their Rotary Club, their Civitan Club, their church, their real estate business. And so all of a sudden, for two years, I was giving free talks every week all over South Bend, Indiana. And then it just began to mushroom. Uh, and suddenly I was flying all over the country. My wife would pick me up at the airport in South Bend, take me to Philosophy 101. I'd teach that, eat lunch, teach Philosophy 265. She'd take me back to the airport, and I'd fly someplace else to give a talk. And at a certain point, she said, you know, you're probably going to have to make a choice. You know, you're living Mm -hmm. these two two lives simultaneously here. And I realized there were lots of great philosophy professors in the classrooms
0: of America, but,
1: you know, no public philosophers since Emerson, really. And so I thought, okay, I felt a sense of calling. And so Mm -hmm. I was the first full professor to resign my position, not to go to another university, but just to go hang out my shingle. And people thought it was the ultimate midlife crisis.
0: Now, folks, I have to underscore Having been a re- made it all the way to retirement as a full professor, I I believe that is quite a leap of faith, how yeah. you taught you taught the philosophy of religion, so you had a little edge on that, Tom. But <laughs> I have to say, though, another part of what you've just told me is that the first uh, and second and maybe 30th of these uh, talks that you were giving first in Indiana and then more and more around, the country in the world mm-hmm. there's something about you doing them that you yourself really got a lot out of i mean yeah, it was well, great yeah. for the audience but it seems to me that even preparing each talk and you probably didn't give the same standard speech every time because the word would get out in south bend oh don't listen to morris i already heard him over in the Rivertan club <laughs> the one so it was about original talks and Lots of different audiences. Uh, talk about how that made you feel.
1: It was amazing because, you know, I'd won teaching awards at Notre Dame and the Council for Advancement Supportive Education one year called me Indiana State Professor of the Year, which nobody at Notre Dame had ever been given that award before. It Wonderful. So I was having fun in the classroom. I was really enjoying that a lot. But I remember once I came back from a trip to Costa Rica with a bunch of corporation presidents. There were eleven presidents of companies, and we flew down on one guy's big jet and spent three or four days in the jungle together. And uh, these guys were just the guy, the guy who hired me ended up being an ambassador to Switzerland or something years mm. after that, but. He told me in advance, he said, look, three of the guys are really skeptical about us bringing a philosopher along. You know, they're saying, like, what the hell are we taking a philosopher to Costa Rica?
0: (laughs) Where's the fun in that? Yeah, yeah.
1: And he said, I just got to warn you, some of the guys think this is not a good idea. And so at Mm -hmm. the end of our days in Costa Rica, three of the guys came up to me and hugged me and picked me up off the ground in a bear hug. Three of the guys. So one, two, three. And he later came up to me and said, those were the three guys. Uh-huh. It, 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 they were all saying this has been a life changing week. This has been a life changing experience. And I go back to my students in day Dame to my senior seminar. And they're in this seminar. There were eight students sitting around the table. And I'm telling them about the stuff we we realized in Costa Rica. This made amaz- some amazing ideas. And they're uh-huh. all sort of writing on their taking notes for the test, you know, and they're not they're not in states of enlightenment or or joy yeah. or like, oh my God, I can't believe this. They're like, you know, wait, is this going to be on the test? You know? And I'm thinking <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, I love my students. I really do. Yeah. But I would love even more seeing people really appreciate the wisdom of the great philosophers and really appreciate coming to their own wisdom. In ways that were eye opening. So I would get something out of every talk. I pour myself into it and then the audiences would pour it back to me. So it was amazing.
0: Oh, right. like No, that that is definitely how practice works at its best, because yeah. we those of us who choose a course of action that will never give up like yeah. you are now and, and love the results. Want more? <laughs> it's it's Absolutely. a it's a lovely intoxication, particularly that kind of feedback. Now, in your posts on that I see, mm-hmm. you you come up with something original to every picture that you that you accomplish. Is that that sort of hook of saying, "Let's see what I can come up with next"? One of the ways you are practicing as a public philosopher, just yeah, that the original. Here's here's another pitch. Uh,
1: this yeah, story. I mean, I wrote my first 10 books were for Oxford and Cornell and, and places mm-hmm. like that, you know, really technical stuff. And then I started writing in the mid-90s. The first book I wrote for a really general audience was called True Success, A New Philosophy of Excellence. And and I tend to, I tend to think in book-length thoughts. So it's been really <laughs> easy for me to write books. I wrote my first book when I was 21 years old. And ever since then, I'll have an idea, and it'll be a 200 to 300-page idea. That's kind of the way I think. So I thought it would be a nice discipline to use social media to come up with a paragraph level ideas. And I decided to do that in a really unusual way. Most people think I come up with an idea on Facebook, LinkedIn. I post across five or six social media every morning. Most people think I come up with an idea and then go searching for a picture to illustrate it because Mm -hmm. that would be a normal way to do things. But yeah. I tend not to be very normal. And so what I do is <laughs> I saved in my computer long ago, lots of Tumblr sites where people just collected photographs of all kinds of stuff and paintings and pictures and all kinds of visuals. Mm-hmm. And so what I'll do is I'll go to somebody's archive and I have a bunch of these sites collected. I go to somebody's archive where you'll see 30 pictures on the screen at once and you can you can scroll through them. And if one catches your eye, you can blow it up bigger and look at it. And I'll ask myself, does anything here speak to me today? And mm-hmm. if it does, if a painting grabs my attention or a photograph and I linger on it, I'll say, okay, what does this represent to me as a philosopher, as a person trying to understand life better? And then I'll type out whatever I come up with. Then I post it on social media to see if it speaks to other people as well.
0: Isn't that fun? I mean, really, just not knowing exactly until you have that picture chosen what you're going to you're going to no. say putting it out in succinctly which i admire <laughs> in your efforts if you can write whole books of 200 pages like that no. but then uh, th- that that um i if i will the one that looks at something as others would look at as a normal or even in a flat way it's just a picture of a a fox and a and, and an owl—the one you did this week, yeah—and yeah. they were like, "Oh yeah, look at the fox and the owl." You, your eye for a sort of a truth, mm-hmm. uh gave you that uh, those that paragraph or two. Yeah, it, I'd rather that be. That a, I said to myself, paragraph. I.
1: I'd rather be an owl than a fox. And I said, okay, why? <laughs> and so I write another sentence. You know, what's the fox known for in popular mythology? What's the owl known for? And then I kind of riff on that for a few sentences. Mm-hmm. And then you look back, and a couple hours later, and there are 20 people who've commented on it, or 30 people who've commented on it in all their different ways, right? There and you go. Somebody is talking about wisdom and the next guy is talking about the limitations of animal metaphors that's great i want to hear <laughs> it all you know
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and, and but the, so the the uh the sort of the promulgation of comments the uh way comments start to feed in after that work that's that's satisfying too and and plus i would add you know that it's a kind of a learning a moment for you you're learning oh this guy i know i never thought oh someone's championing the fox here but it's uh there's that reciprocity of thinking that you're helping us out here uh think a little more deeply in the moment that we're scrolling and then you get the fun of seeing the feedback.
1: Right? It's this wonderful asynchronous conversation that mm-hmm. unlike the letters and postcards of your, uh, takes place over a matter of minutes and hours or a couple days rather than a day a week passing between you send off a letter and you get a response. So it's not it's not um, in the moment, but it's close enough. Yeah, so you close, develop yeah. some interesting ways you see this idea, ramifying out in unexpected ways in people's own filters. And, you know, somebody's going to push back on almost anything. And mm-hmm. I, as a philosopher, try to learn from that sort of, I, I used to dread somebody saying, are you completely wrong? And I said, oh, okay, you know, oh, yeah. uh, you've got enough of that in the academic world, right? But, um, <laughs> but I finally learned to think, okay, I'm going to see what made that guy say that. And it's often a guy, you know, who pushes back. Um, And then I'll try to wrap around that and engage him in a really positive way on what we can find together with respect to this apparent disagreement in the use of an idea or an image or whatever. And it's great fun.
0: Philosophy is a word like practice that people hear a lot. I have one. I have a practice. But really, there's so much deeper in both what I and Peter Vale started to see working together about the nature of people in practice, but yeah. help the listeners and me get a feel for what philosophy means to you. Mm-hmm. What is it to be a philosopher? And how is that different than a leadership guy or, a, yeah. you know, all the ones that are talking out there in business?
1: Sure, sure. It's an interesting thing because I'll start with the etymology of the word philosophia, love of wisdom. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember years ago having the idea for the first time, wait a minute, an object of love is an interesting thing. When you lack it, you pursue it. When you have it, you embrace it. Well, maybe philosophy then is supposed to be the pursuit and embracing of wisdom. And um, what is wisdom? Well, deep insight about, about living. Um, Hmm. Insights that not just a matter of the head, but the heart as well, so that you can't imagine it would be a contradiction in terms to say of someone, he's a very wise man who lives like a fool, because wisdom, I think, uh, is essentially embodied. Now, it could be argued as well that knowledge is, if you have a piece of knowledge, you inevitably embody that in some ways with your habits and dispositions of action and feeling. But wisdom, I think, is even deeper, um, more deeply embedded in the heart and mind. So so to to live as a philosopher is a kind of an interesting thing in our time because my training in philosophy was wholly in analytic philosophy. It's almost conceptual warfare. You learn to make minutely fine distinctions, to to insist on rigorous arguments, to know the limitations as well as strengths of any line of reasoning. You becomes like a navy seal of the mind almost. And that <laughs> takes it takes a lot of people almost into you know into a pugilistic, um, yeah. almost militaristic approach to ideas, whereas philosophy is not supposed to be that at all. No, you know?
0: I heard the word love in your in your earlier. <laughs> that doesn't sound like love. That sounds like war. I mean, yeah. that does. Uh, that, it's close to I'm going to show you you're a fool.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, right. You're absolutely right. So as a philosopher, I'm trying to reclaim a lot of things in for our time. I'm trying to reclaim a proper sense of what philosophy is. I'm trying to reclaim concepts like success, happiness, wisdom from modern counterfeits and modern misunderstandings. I just did a book this summer that's kind of my least expected book uh, called The Everyday Patriot, How to Be a Great American Now, where I kind of wade into social and political philosophy and the idea of patriotism. I'm trying to reclaim that concept. From its misunderstandings yeah. as nationalism and militarism and xenophobia and jingoism and all this stuff into kind of what what love of country is supposed to mean. And I actually end up using some ideas that I didn't realize at the time uh, had been originally developed in a slightly different way by a second century stoic that almost nobody's heard of named Heracles. But some oh, philosophers sure. have been pondering this since Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Politics, and I use a bunch of their ideas in my book. But it's all about reclaiming um, ideas in their purity from misuse and corruption and counterfeiting that too often substitutes in modern discourse for the real thing. And oh, it's an yeah. uphill battle, but it's worth finding it's-
0: I was gonna say your yeah, work is cut out for you.
1: Yeah, it's true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but thank but thank you for for that intention. It it uh it's 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 sorely needed and it's needed among children, about teens, about every age group, up oh. into to us uh who are in the last phase of our lives. <laughs> and yeah. uh what we can do in our time is to hear some of the way that uh the nastiness of verbiage is is yeah. pouring out everywhere and we can say boy you know it seems to me that we weren't raised that way it seems to me that people were more civil it seems to me mm-hmm. that we had time for searching conversations with people with whom we disagreed yeah. now granted that's how it seems you know from the 50s to now right. but there was something to it yeah. at least the way i was um lived and grew up in 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 maine back then it was a mm-hmm. it was a time that i wish we could get back to but with modern fixtures i mean sure. the, no. the things we've learned since but there was that um well it's certainly about you but not about me. but i'll tell you the kind of philosophy ways that i learned philosophy was keenly at paying attention to my dad to yep. my grandfather, my mm-hmm. uncle, in the way they conducted themselves mm-hmm. in business as well as in civics and church. And so I was watching and my certainly give credit to the my mother and grandmother and others. but mm-hmm. but you know, I think by nature, I was focused on my dad and 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 he was not one who talked a lot mm-hmm. about what he believed, but you could tell, yeah, his philosophy, particularly when he was. Yeah selling and then and, and designing kitchens for people it was just that um yeah wisdom <laughs> yeah. wisdom of another kind so uh how much of do you hear from those of us in our generation who are saying tom you know it, it's too late you know the way it was is over it was wonderful but you know we're all pretty hard-nosed out here now and yeah. no room for a public philosopher
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I think there are pendulum swings in human life, right? Hegel tried to make too much of that once upon a time in his theoretical philosophy, but there are pendulum swings and uh, you see that uh, everything's rushing in one direction, and it goes to an extreme, and then people get sick to death of that, and then the pendulum swings back. You know, we can trace this over decades, over centuries, and yet we we have historians like Rutger Bregman uh, in, uh, in Netherlands, and we have Steven Pinker here in this country, who have argued extensively that things are getting better for humanity in many ways that often seem hidden by the headlines of the day and the decade, mm-hmm. but uh, we we are making some cumulative moral progress, however, slowly over the centuries, aggravatingly uh, uh, slowly. Mm-hmm. But it, like you say, my dad was the same way. I grew up in a house hardly bigger than the room I'm in now, 800 square foot rented house. Mm-hmm. And my dad was a high school graduate, but the house was full of books by Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau and Plato and Aristotle and Marcus Aurelius. And I, as a kid, I still have some of my father's books on my shelf. And I have my little childhood drawings in the back on the back pages of the books. And I remember thinking, who are, who are all these people? And my dad would tuck me into bed at night and he would say something about how to relax, or he would say something about, you know, he would say like life is supposed to be a series of adventures. The one Mm -hmm. you're living now is preparing you for the next one. And often ways you, in ways you can't even imagine, uh, he would give me these little perspectives on, on, on life. And, um, I think I wanted to be a philosopher from a very early age because, like you, I saw an important person in my life as as a philosopher. Now he was in sales. Well, uh, he 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 helped manufacture air and design airplanes when he was in his teens and early twenties at the Martin Aircraft Company in Baltimore. Um, he worked his way through every department till he was in experimental design. He was this kid off the farm in North Carolina with a twelfth grade education. And Amazing. they told the War Department, you can't you can't um uh, send this guy to fight in the World War II because he knows more about airplane design than anybody in America. We need him here. And the War Department says no 20 year old knows that much. He's holding a rifle. And um. Um, so but he went into sales. He went into manufacturing and selling toys to uh, building radio stations throughout the South and selling the airtime, the advertising time on the stations. He was in real estate sales at the end of his life. And I learned he was fascinated with human psychology, which you know was a part of philosophy
0: yes, in the early is. days. What makes and, people tick? Yeah.
1: yeah. So I mean, I just kind of like you had a natural introduction to that sort of world, yeah. that sort of way of thinking.
0: Oh yeah. Well, we're both very fortunate, and uh, certainly, certainly miss my dad. Um, yeah. We. I'm watching my clock, and and we. It seems like we've only just begun, but I, as you know, people. These days, don't have the time or don't want to give the time to spend a lot of time listening to any particular episode uh, or anything else for that matter. I'm sounding cynical, and I, I guess I am in a way because all the years that I taught, and I'm sure that it was the same for you, I wanted my learners to read the the heftier book, yeah, the uh, the one in the in the book in the source book to that book, being a liberalized guy i guess that was my my requirement but i was teaching in a business school for a lot of those years and i kept getting the feedback well can't we just look can we boil this down to two pages and my answer would be well or someone would say well what the the man i'm working for says i'll never read more than two pages and and so i said well what you would be missing is the what it sounds like to have the voice in your eye in your ear as you're reading of a very thoughtful careful responsible person who's making sure that what he or she is writing is going to be beneficial to you yeah and you're missing that voice so you can listen to someone giving a uh you know a, a two-minute you know tech talk and fine but try once in a while to spend a lot of time with some voices, as I'm hoping people will with you in our conversation, because I think if anything else, people will listen in on a good conversation.
1: You know, you're you're right. I mean, when Moses came down the mountain with 10 commandments, I think God must have had in mind 20 or 30, but he figured two people won't listen to more than 10. So we're going to have to cut it down. (laughs) <laughs> um, one of my most, I happen to have a copyright here. If I pull it out from under some other things, one of my most popular books in the last few years has been a little novel, short novel, uh, mm-hmm. called The Oasis Within. It's a, it's a trip across the desert in Egypt in 1934 where a 13 year old boy. His uncle, who's an older man, 70 years old, says to him, you know, you're old enough now. There's some stuff I've been wanting to tell you about. It's the boy's first trip across the desert. And the boy says, sure. What do you have in mind? And they start having this series of amazing conversations. And one of the conversations is about the worth of good books and Mm. how if a book is written from wisdom, it's a very different experience from if it was just written from knowledge. And, uh, the importance of going back to good books. And I read last year, year and a half ago, I read the Odyssey four times cover to cover in two different translations. I read the Iliad twice that year. I just finished a reading of the Aeneid three times in a row this year. Um, the classics are classics for a reason. One famous novelist once told me a book never becomes a literary classic because of the beauty of the language alone. It's always the ideas in the book that are so important. And so for the people who want the two page summary, I wanna say, you know what? A lot of things in life can be summarized, Mm -hmm. but there are other things that can only be experienced and uh, you have to live with that author for a while. Only on my fourth reading in a row of the Odyssey did I finally understand the Odyssey. Only on my second reading of the Iliad did I finally say, "Ah, I know what it's about now." You got to immerse yourself in these classics, and it's really worthwhile for your own life. I tell people that uh, all all the time. But if they just want to immerse themselves in something small, the Oasis they go man will read, do read,
0: <laughs> read Tom Morris's shorter books. Yeah, I, I you know I, I'm intrigued by. Uh, I observe, and I am intrigued, and intrigued by your drive. Yeah, we see all manner of drive. We see it in the political campaigns that are that are culminating today, for example. And but I see the kind of drive that you are offering—the one who would put yourself through the reading of one of those books four times to look for more, more nodules and more gems. That drive. Where does that come from? <laughs> uh, it
1: comes from, you know what? I, 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 I want to drink, drink some of that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's kind of pure joy. It's just a result of who I am meeting what these books are. It's a pure joy. I mean, when I wrote The Oasis Within, I'd never expected to write fiction, but it came to me as a movie playing in my head. And I felt an obligation to just run up here to the, my computer and type as fast as I could. It became an entire book. I put the first 10 pages on Huffington Post, not knowing it was the beginning of a book. And I started getting emails from all over the world within two hours. What is this? This is great. This is the best stuff. Is this part of a book? I said, I don't know what it is. And then following that, there were seven numbered volumes following that. So over a million words, an epic tale taking place in Egypt over a year and a half, And it was pure joy for me. Five years of writing, pure joy. And like you asked me about the Aeneid or the Odyssey or the Iliad. And I only started reading classics as an adult in my 50s. -hmm. I thought, you know, I've never read great novels like Don Quixote and Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. I got to read those things. And oh, my goodness. Once you do, you start having so many new ideas. Ah. You can't help but get excited about it.
0: There's the clue then. You're you're you just love ideas. And I you'll lo- no, no, just love them. You love having them.
1: Yeah, that's right. right.
0: And I suspect that's going to carry you for how many decades ahead. Yeah. That you're right. Ab- that absolutely.
1: Isn't. I have a friend now who just turned a hundred. Uh, the old TV producer Norman Lear. And he still, oh, yeah. he still works at the age of 100. I've known him since I was 39 and he was 69. And he had so much energy when he was 69. He made me feel like I was a slug in a pool of mud. He was so energetic and, and active. But uh, to see him, at the, he called me the night after his uh, ABC special, uh, uh, you know, Norman Ye- Lear, 100 years. He, he called me yeah, the I next that. night. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I feel like I'm listening to a guy who's middle aged, not 100 years old, you mm-hmm. know. So that's, that's hope for us all
0: so so we we may have finally discovered that fountain of youth and the fountain of youth is within and it is it is the uh uh, the hunger for for ideas and conversations about ideas which you know engendering in Facebook and LinkedIn and now here uh I'll I'll put in a a a plug for what someone said about me so we have a chance of meeting each other when we're both in our hundreds <laughs> uh Lizzie Freudman uh who had introduced me to a person whom I featured today uh-huh. uh, Mani Singh uh who's a very talented uh, musician slash tech technical I can't even add all the words this young <laughs> young man but anyway she said in the email to me she said you are voraciously curi- curious. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> and, and I think that in our each in our own way, uh, your curiosities can come from many sources, mine too. But the curiosity about, I can't, I don't want to give up because I want to find out what's coming next. I want to find out who I'm going to meet next. I want to find out about this guy, Tom Morris, who I've only given my readers and listeners a sample, uh, Tom. So, we need to do more of these. But in yeah, the meantime, I I, I, I'm inspired and exhausted <laughs> in, a, in a good way, <laughs> just thinking about all your productivity. But I can see the source. So once again, you're the public philosopher and you want us to find our wisdom.
1: Yeah. Right. That's right. And, and grow it and develop it. Absolutely right. Through curiosity, through wonder, philosophy begins in wonder, Aristotle said, which is a form of curiosity, a deep form. I think that's the stream. That is the the the, the fountain of youth, right? The fountain of youth. It's, it, it feeds our spirits. It keeps us young. It keeps us engaged. Um, you look at a person, a creative person like Norman Lear, it's that creativity, it's that curiosity that's kept oh, him yeah. going over the years. And and I just kind of got that spirit as well. And um, so that love of wisdom, that pursuit, that practice of wisdom, right? But to bring it back to the notion of a practice. It is, yeah. It's not a momentary flirtation, it's it's an engaged pursuit. Um, And somebody pointed out to me, pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence at the time that was written, a pursuit wasn't just a seeking, it was a practice of, like the pursuit of law, like the pursuit of medicine, right, like the practice of law and medicine, the practice of wisdom should be structuring our lives however we make our livelihoods. And um, if we can encourage that in the world, we'll help the pendulum swing back from the amazing foolishness (laughs) we're seeing around us in the world now to the true wisdom we actually need.
0: Amen to that, Tom. Thank you very, very much for this conversation. Thank you, David. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcasts, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, oh! how could I have forgotten? Our digital book, On Practice as a Way of Being, is now available. You'll find it online at www.mylibrary.world. I worked on that book after Peter passed away, and I think you will find it a unique and very, very mobile reading experience since it's wherever your screen is in hand or at hand.